Um, but when I worked for Alex Panamarenko, who's, you know, a former Ukrainian uh, international level coach, he coached Olympians um, in the hurdles. And he we had his little studio. And one of the first things we saw people do is how they step over hurdles. I remember when I came out of college and came there, I was big on the anti-rotation. I had just, you know, taken a bunch of strength certifications. I was like, all right, like my core is sturdy and I'm going over things really solid. And he saw me step over hurdles and he was like, what are you doing? Because, because I was going over and I was just using, I was, everything came from the hip joint. And he was like, why isn't your pelvis moving? Like, why are you locked up? What, do you, what happened to you? That was coach and acupuncture student Sam Wiest speaking on rotational dynamics in hurdle mobility training. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 155 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. And our guest is none other than Sam Wiest. He is a track coach at Tufts University and an acupuncture student uh, finishing his degree from the New England School of Acupuncture. So Sam's appearance here has been a long time coming. If you're familiar with the blog, the website, uh, and yes, we do have a website. Uh, it's, it's interesting how people get their information these days. Podcasts have really changed the world of really information and how we absorb data just because it's so much easier. You can do it with your driving or, or walking or, or whatever, and you don't have to be in front of a computer screen or, or have your phone in your face, which is pretty cool. But anyways, uh, I, I first met Sam. We have a lot in common. We, uh, we first met at a Douglas Heel Be Activated seminar, and we are both NCAA, well, Sam, NCAA Division One, me, NAI, <laughs> high jumpers, and Sam also did a few other events. I did a few other events, but we have that in common. And one of the things that I just really appreciate about Sam is he's such an outside-the-box thinker. Uh, so, yeah, back to the website, Just Fly Sports, the actual blog. He uh, has written some tremendous articles on rotational dynamics and looking at how we can get a more optimal rotational strategy out of sprinting and jumping and even dunking in basketball. Uh, Sam is no slouch at all in his own coaching he has worked with athletes from many ends of the spectrum. He's also uh, the coach of the NCAA Division Three 2018 Indoor High Jump Champion. So uh, a guy who is intuitive, puts it together, and really helps us to think and get outside the box a little bit better so that we can come back and circle back 
uh, with some new ideas and some new layers of awareness to this whole spectrum. But the the Eastern practice and the expansion into a lot more philosophy and thoughts of like Chinese medicine and to be able to integrate the ideas of other cultures and systems into this whole sports performance spectrum, this human performance spectrum, is really cool. And I know those of you familiar with people like Charles Poliquin, he was integrating Chinese medicine and Chinese philosophy into like the five elements and ways of categorizing and quantifying athletes. And it's, it's just always really cool to have these types of conversations and these additions to our own thought process. Uh, so for today's episode, Sam is going to get into a few concepts. The first off, we're going to get and touch on, we're going to get into, touch on his thoughts on rotational training, how to implement that in a variety of ways and settings. He's going to chat a little bit about the faults of a brace-oriented core movement. We're going to get into coaching, feedback, sensation. Uh, this is very much a, a episode with a very uh, much of a track and field flair to it. But if you are in the coaching sector, it's really about motor learning. I think a big thing we get out of track is the motor learning space. And I think that just the skill skill acquisition, it's, it's the same for all sports. So whether you're a track coach or not, I think there's a lot you can get out of that. Uh, we're also going to talk about his, we're going to chat a little bit about Sam's ideas on coaching not and, and kind of just getting out of this overly visual space where it's like you do a skill, okay, let's go look at it on the phone or the iPad, go do it again. He's going to talk about how he utilizes rhythm and timing and how he progresses skill development in his own coaching. Uh, the back half of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about things Chinese medicine has taught Sam, about training and recovery, periodization, and a whole lot more. So this was a show that I tremendously enjoyed doing. Again, Sam is a guy who I feel like we're really on that same vibe, that same brainwave. And so uh, that being said, I feel like, man, Sam, we should have had you on the show about 100 episodes ago, but uh, it's, it's definitely better late than never. So I'm proud to have this episode 155 with Sam Wiest on the way. Uh, one last thing before we get started, and I usually mention this in the back half or the, the outro, but if you, if you like this episode or if you like this podcast and, and what we're doing and it's impacted you or helped your coaching or athletics at all, I would totally appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, whatever you listen whatever you are listening to this on, uh, it would definitely help us in spreading the message of all these awesome coaches to those people who want to learn and who want to further their own knowledge of this thing we call um, coaching, sports performance, human performance, whatever you want to call it. I'm not even sure exactly sometimes, but if you want to share this message, I would totally appreciate if you left us a rating or review. That being said, let's get into the show, episode 155 with Sam Wiest. You feel, like a lot of it's just like feeling it. Like, like mm. you have to feel something yourself, like do it yourself. And then that's like the gateway to, okay, like let's, now let's take it from here a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I have that experience. I take Tai Chi classes on Saturdays as like a martial art. And uh, yeah, it's like, <laughs> so you see somebody doing it. It's like, wow, they're just waving their arms. And then your teacher throws you on the ground. And uh, <laughs> your teacher is like five, six, and he has like, you know, maybe 50 to 60 pounds less than you. And he's just like throwing you around like a rag doll. And you're like, wow, that's a, I would not have not having that experience would not have any idea that that's what was going on. That's, so. That is awesome. That reminds me of like, like my first experience with Tai Chi, I was well, this is weird right away because I'm disc golfing in Yellow Springs, Ohio, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. That's weird enough. Okay, that's one level. And then you're, yeah. you're doing it like Yellow Springs is almost like the Berkeley of, of the Midwest, you know, and, yeah. and, 
and I see these people just between disc golf holes, like in the grass, just doing Tai Chi, waving their arms. And, you know, I'm 23 and I'm like, oh, you guys are weird. Like this is, that's, you know, like if, if I'm sports performance lens, that's total weak sauce. But then you get someone who throws you on the ground. Like you said, you feel, you feel the power that goes through. It's like, okay, now, okay, show me some more. Show me, let's, uh, (laughs) let's look into this. Yeah. Yeah, When your teacher starts to teach you how to do one arm push-ups without locking up any joint and keeping everything mobile it's like you know if you if you ever done like a one-arm push-up you know that like the easiest way to do it is just keep everything tight and to just be able to be like okay like this whole abdomen trunk legs everything has to just lock up and this is the lever and it's like no like actually you can hang out here and if you really needed to you could kind of like shuffle your way to the side and do all these other things as you're doing a one-arm push-up and it's like yeah you're still doing a one-arm push-up like it's still a display of strength it's just not in the world that we're used to and not in the language that you know if you read uh naked strength by pavel like it's not how he teaches it it's a completely different way but it's getting the same movement done and actually perhaps um you know in the tai chi world is definitely promoting uh health in a different way because your blood is circulating differently um you know if you're not locking things up it's a yep. very different way to do a movement so was it was it you sam who recommended me the the principles of effortless power book i feel like it was you no but you passed it along to me okay. i could have seen did, it being you recommended to me i don't even know yeah. how it got me onto that i yeah I, I love that though. i look at it a little bit as like there's like the masculine and feminine sides of teaching something and the yeah. answer to being the ultimate sportsman or sportswoman is not, it's not on one side. Like the Powell yeah. way is like, you know, lock up this joint, lock up this joint, lock up this joint. Like you said, the yeah. one arm push up, create tons of tension. Yeah. I don't know. That's not how Steph Curry moves. Like, no, <laughs> you know, it's not at all. There's this. You, you look at some of these shooters and like their shoulders don't even come up. Like they're just like down here. Even as they shoot, they're nothing, like nothing here. I remember I had an athlete pat me on the shoulder once and he was like, coach like why, why don't you like why is this soft and I was like, because i don't need to use my traps all the time yeah do it do do some more olympic lifts and some more uh and run the rack on shoulder yeah, shots like i can still like out olympic lift you know the kids on our team like it's not like i got weak i just don't really do it that often and otherwise you don't really need your traps to be on all the time like even deadlifting like you just hang out in a good position like that you don't need them to be giant yeah it's like i mean it's honestly like i have kids now i have a one and a three-year-old and it's like their shoulders are super relaxed i mean even yeah. if you know even if they bend over to pick something up that's kind of heavy that still it doesn't change the paradigm of how they're wired and i have yeah. been using stuff like direct current uh, muscle stimulation and i'll see like for me personally like my four like my forearms especially from just like rock climbing and then being I think it's a little bit of a mind body thing of like really willing my way through life and like, yeah. you know, trying hard or whatever, like the, the resistance there is so high compared to any other muscle group. It's just insane. And I'm just like, how did I get like this? Like, man. And I, I, so it's just, it's always cool to, to look back and, and sometimes you don't realize how much tension is somewhere until yeah. you like can relax. Like, I, I think I was just lying in bed last night thinking about it and I'm letting my hand like. I just am feeling my hand just slowly close into a fist without even me thinking about it. Like, yeah. and, and I'm just like, wow, there's a lot more tension there that I ever would have expected. And, and how does this change, you know, how I operate as an athlete or if I'm playing basketball yeah. and probably why I did track instead of basketball, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. If you have tight hands, like you're not going to be able to, if that's how you move, definitely hundred percent. 
Yeah, man. Uh, no, I, I love talking movement. And so let's uh, let's dive into like so rotational rotational training. You wrote an article uh, for Just Slice Sports. What was it maybe two years ago? That like yeah, just total game changer, man. I mean, I think people have obviously been talking about that idea for a while, but the way you put it and framed it just made so much sense. And like we we can watch these athletes doing things like dunking a basketball. And it's, it's almost like layers of awareness until someone tells you that something is there. You don't realize it like, oh, you're taking the ball across your body to do this. So uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about general tra- or about uh, rotational training uh, and s- some things behind that. And so what, since you wrote that article, uh, what do you feel like are some like misconceptions in rotational training? Like, like how are people, what are good ways to apply it? And then what are ways to kind of take it overboard? Yeah, I think some of the probably the biggest misconception um, that people have had since that article came out that have come up to me is that it's something different, um, is that we're throwing away neutral pelvis. We're throwing away um, other, you know, sagittal plane mechanics in favor of this. And that's actually not what we're doing at all. We're just looking at something extra. Um, when Bush Exnader, who's, you know, the king of track and field coaching, basically, um, when he talks about the neutral pelvis, the neutral pelvis is there in order to facilitate rotation around a central axis in all planes of motion in order to be able to be in a better alignment and a better dynamic posture. So one of the things that people get caught up in and that really I find a lot of the folks that have, you know, I wouldn't say too many folks have been critical of it, but folks that have more questions or don't really seem to immediately understand it is they kind of come at it from a lens of, okay, we've been knowing all these anti-rotation movements in the weight room. And we've been doing all these, like, we need to lock up things. We need to stay put. We need to, we don't want to bend when we get hit. And it's actually, you know, we want to control our rotation. We're not trying to like hit the ground or hit a weight and just fold, but we want to control that. And we want to store elastic energy. We want to put that out. Um, All the movements in the body really start from the center. So being able to actually have that area it's not loose. It's not slack. It's not in anterior uh, pelvic tilt and all over the place. It's still controlled, but we're maximizing that control. We're still hitting the ground under our center of mass, but in between phases, we're getting a greater stretch reflex. We're getting a greater range of motion. We're getting uh, more elastic energy out of it, and we're moving smoother and more efficiently. I think that's the biggest one is that we're doing something different and really we're not, it's just, we're not talking about a specific aspect of training and uh, performance and technique that a lot of folks that are winning are already doing. Yeah. I think that's the big thing is looking at like the elite athletes who are already doing it and kind of porting it over to the, the typical training means that, that we already do. Uh, like, so what are some basic ideas too? I know there's, there's the gamut of things out there. Like I think there's some like France Bostrels and, 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 you know, you got the water bag, uh, kind of rabbit hole and all these different ideas on how to get rotational. Right. But like, so just for like some basic movements, let's, I mean, jumping obviously, or, or sprinting or accelerating, uh, what are some basic things that you look at from like a triplanar perspective, uh, as the athlete to help you determine if the athlete is using rotation properly And then what are some basic training ideas that we can put in our memory banks that go behind that? Yeah. One of the first things that I see, um, and that one thing that I think is both overused and undercoached at the same time, we look at hurdle mobility drills in track and field. Most coaches use them. 
a couple I know have really ditched them because they say, you know, I don't really understand why we're doing this. We might as well be doing other mobility work instead because this isn't really mobility work. Maybe that some of that stigma comes with the name. Um, but when I worked for Alex Panamarenko, who's, you know, a former Ukrainian uh, international level coach, he coached Olympians um, in the hurdles. And he, we had his little studio. And one of the first things we saw people do is how they step over hurdles. I remember when I came out of college and came there, I was big on the anti-rotation. I had just, you know, taken a bunch of strength certifications. I was like, all right, like my core is sturdy and I'm going over things really solid. And he saw me step over hurdles and he was like, what are you doing? Because, because I was going over and I was just using, I was, everything came from the hip joint. And he was like, why isn't your pelvis moving? Like, why are you locked up? What, you, what happened to you? That he was basically like, what is wrong? <laughs> who messed you like, up? Who messed you who up? Who messed you up? Um, so we actually just watched somebody pick up, pick up their leg when they go to pick, go over a hurdle or go over some, um, uh, what do you call it? Extrinsic form of uh, teaching. Then they see like, what do they do? A kid will raise everything that they can possibly raise. They'll get as many degrees of freedom on that as they can. And they'll get over it um, without sacrificing stability. Whereas somebody who's been taught something else will often just try to focus on moving one joint. And what that'll do is create a whole lot of stiffness and stagnation and potential injury in that joint. I think that's part of one of the reasons why hurdlers get hurt so often is not necessarily that they just use their hips all the time, but they're using just their hips and not their core and not other parts of their body that could potentially be preventing them from getting hurt. Um, so hurdle drills are a big one that I see anything that involves rotation and crossing your body. So even just working that into basic movements with a med ball, just something where the body, you know, moves across itself. Um, I know there's still that stigma, I think in the track and field world of like arms go forward and back and never cross the midline. And that's just not, um, if you watch the best sprinters in the world, they're not going straight forward and back. There is a lateral element. There is a rotational element. Um, in order to engage the bigger muscles in the body, the arms do come to the midline and come out slightly. That's just how we work. Um, so watching them just do that is the easiest way to kind of get a screen on it. Um, like, do they actually move their pelvis? Is it, is it locked in place? Um, some people will have tissue restrictions from a lot of heavy uh, weight room work and a lot of maybe less than optimal coaching that we kind of have to start to work out. Kids don't have that. Um, but, you know, in this day and age, if your posture is a little bit slouchy and so other things, your spine's not straight, um, then, yeah, we, we do have to start looking at strength and other tissue imbalances that um, are preventing you from moving like that. It makes me think, uh, you know, as through this process of coaching and, and just working over time, and I was just talking about uh, Tim Anderson last week with this for the podcast, with, was just like crawling and just basically letting athletes figure it out and not trying to. Uh, the idea of even a crawl, like it, like there's, it's common to want to put a cone on the person's back and a little tennis ball in it while they crawl so that they keep it stable and nothing moves around. And, <laughs> and we're obsessed with that. We're obsessed with this. And it also makes me think, well, what's the barometer, right? Because like, I mean, I think at least in a clinical rehab setting, you know, there these these stability exercises are in there for a reason. But it's like once we move out of that, once you're good there, now we can move on to the next level of things. And, and so I think maybe it just gets muddy, like somewhere somewhere between there and what athletes actually do. Yeah. And, and I'm always trying to think about, well, how do we make sense of this in a way that helps these, uh, if there's two sides battling, or I don't even maybe think of it that way, but just to help the average person think about um, how to athletes move and be athletes, 
but to understand maybe the need for a clinical, I just call it clinical. Cause yeah, I don't, I mean, bracing and athletic movement isn't a thing. Um, yeah. And maybe that's just it, but uh, maybe I'm confusing <laughs> myself. I did want to ask you, so how do you, so if you have athletes who are doing just something like hurdle mobility, just walking over hurdles, is there anything that, and you see someone who's a little rigid, is there any guidelines or pointers that you're instructing them through to get more natural movement out of it? Yeah. I mean, first of all, just pointing out the fact that, okay, you're not moving here and this is an area in the trunk that you can actually move. Uh, you're not like bending forward from motion. You're not like caving your back. You're not doing anything wonky but you actually are raising your free hip and saying like, okay, when you sprint, how high do your knees actually go? Like, do, the, do your knees really need to get up to your chest height? And it's like, actually, they don't really need, that's not really optimal. So, you know, first of all, like being generous as far as sometimes we need to bump down hurdle heights to get people to work, you know, to actually do something like that. But we also need to make them aware that they should be getting more range of motion out of that free hip. They should be feeling something in their glute med as they're raising their opposite leg because if they're not, then that thing is just loose and you're just leaking energy from that side and your legs are, you know, you're not getting that extension. It's not, you know, we have this concept of triple extension in the sagittal plane and there's a whole lot of other extensions going on as you push off the ground and one of them is that lateral plane. Um, and if you're not getting that, then you're really, like, you're operating with shorter legs than you need to. So... We need to get that first um, and sort of teaching them how to fire off that to really straighten, lengthen through the free side or the stance side, I should say. So the leg on the ground, that shoulder should be maybe a little bit higher um, than the one that is on the free, the free hip side and kind of just going from there um, and then kind of getting them from there to, okay, what is, what is optimal? And then when we start to actually get into skipping and we get into um, to running over things, then we start to work in the timing because you don't hit the ground in a wonky pelvis position. You hit the ground ready to bounce off in a neutral pelvis um, where the, the next free hip is ready to fire up um, because that's super important. You're not trying to destabilize somebody and then have them hit the ground in that compromised position. That's, I guess, another misconception is we're not hitting the ground like with one side of our pelvis way out in front. We're, we're hitting them. It's the same still frames that you got from USATF level, whatever, and back in the 90s are still true. It's just we need to make sure what happens in between um, you really optimize. Yeah, I, I like that way of putting it. Like the still frames are the same. Where it hits, it is, where it hits the ground is the same, but it's like we just necess- we might have just missed everything that's that's in between there. And, and <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was thinking it's almost the same way as like, like in some ways in the weight room, like we cling too heavily to a sagittal plane, bilateral world in the weight room and it's almost like we do the same thing in in dynamic movement and where it's just like triple extension in that plane is prioritized but you're you're losing lateral plane like hip hiking right and internal rotation of the femur like kind of like franz bosch's hip lock mechanism um in in the meantime and so i like how it's almost like you're making the hurdles uh like a it's just like you're putting the awareness on the frontal plane, like like the um, like that plexiglass that goes through you from that that side, and almost more than than and yeah, with the hurdles are super high, you can't do that. You have to have lower hurdles to really work. Yeah, out. you really have to impress upon your you know whatever level you coach. I think it's really important to impress upon your athletes. Like there are times where we really push um, weights, we really push speeds, we really push other things. But if you're not a hurdler and you don't need a certain hurdle height we need you to do this right. Yeah. Like, otherwise, what are you doing? 
Um, and it's, it's such a simple concept, but you or anybody else who's coached knows that if you have all your kids doing the exact same program that, uh, Dan Pfaff is doing with his, you know, Olympic level athletes, they're not going to get the same thing out of it if they're just not doing it well. Um, so you have to make sure that they understand exactly what they're trying to get out of, um, each thing. And I did take, uh, friends Bosch's course when he did come to the U S uh, down at UNC Chapel Hill. And I did take away um really some of his concept about ending like finding um or teaching athletes an endpoint and letting them get there mm. um yeah. so giving them some constraints about the environment or about whether that's a hurdle uh like a little wicket um whether you know obviously they're pushing <clears throat> the aqua bags and some other things too um and i really i do like that concept of like this is the position that you need to end in even though it's intrinsic mm-hmm. um i think there's almost like an extrinsic extrinsic intrinsic um cueing going on when you say this is the finished position that you have to hit it has to feel solid it has to end with this side of your body really long and this side of your body tucked up as high as it can it has to be tall it has to be balanced and then all of a sudden that's not just an internal cue of like, move my hand to the left. That's a feeling. That's mm-hmm. a strong feeling. And um, there's almost an emotional piece to that for athletes that, um, that may not have had that before. And all of a sudden start to feel poppy. They start to feel fast. They start to feel strong. And then once they get that, they, they're much more likely to repeat it because it's a comfortable place to be in. Um, so I really took that away. And I think I really, that's one thing from their uh, presentations that I really use on a regular basis is, this is where you finish. Like you got to feel that and you got to own that. And from there we can work backwards, but you gotta, you gotta end up hitting that piece. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. I, I like that a lot. actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I've, I've just been into some stuff that's very similar. I, I, before I say that though, I was going to say, it's kind of similar to like, like doing like a during the bar squatty runs, like you're in the postural piece is like the center, yeah. like the athletic posture and the, in the hip flex position is yeah. the center. And then you're just getting back to it. You're getting back to it. It's not about yeah. running low per se, but it's just about, it's about getting back to athletic posture. And, and uh, so I was going to say too, like I was just literally watching this. It was yesterday or two days ago, what you were saying. Uh, and this also makes me think of the analogy with the blacksmith hitting the hammer. It's always the same end point. It's just, you're experiencing different ways of getting there and that's building mm-hmm. a more robust pattern to get to that end point. But like yeah. I was watching um, a Feldenkrais practitioner with a little uh, boy. He was probably like maybe one and a half or two, uh, no, like one and a half. And he didn't really sit on his like left pelvis. He would only sit on his, his right side. And mm-hmm. to get him to sit on the left side, to get him to sit on that left hip bone, first they just put like a little like wedge or pillow under the left hip bone. So it's like, okay, here's what it's like to sit on there. Here's what it's like to be comfortable on this left hip bone. Mm-hmm. And then they start dropping him on the hip bone from different spots. So it's like, here's the end. <laughs> I'm going to drop <laughs> you on there from different spots to let you feel this end point. And to me, yeah. it's it's not necessarily that much different. You know, there's maybe that internal community create awareness of where you need to be. But yeah. at the end of the day, like, you know where it is and you know how to feel and find and, and find that intuitive process of your way of, of getting there. So um, absolutely. I think that's right. Yeah. I see the similarities completely. You got to, you got to know what you feel and then um, you can get back there. You got to find your way home first and then, then you can go home. But if you don't know where home is, you're, you're just lost. <laughs> exactly. I've been, man, I saw that video. I'm glad you mentioned it too. Cause I, as soon as I saw that video, I'm like, okay, now I'm thinking like my, my brain's like going to all these rabbit holes of pronation <laughs> and supination and feeling this mm-hmm. part of the foot and dropping into this part of the foot. And I think that eventually the more we can 
you know, the more we unpack elite performers and how they actually move, like I know you've done in your articles that Darian Barr does all the time, and we see these KPIs that elite, and not just those frames, like you said, that USATF puts, but all the other frames. Uh, yeah. And we know where the endpoints are. We can create these fee- these feedback sensory field-based systems on how to get there. And yeah. and I think that's where this is all heading. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, and I think one of the reasons why the education programs stick to those, those slides is because if you show somebody very statically, there are only so many KPIs that you can show statically. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other KPIs that are going on that you can't show because they're more of um, they're just more dynamic. They're more of emotion. They're more the line of force has to be directed in this direction. Um, and you can't really show that without a whole bunch of arrows and diagrams on a picture the same way you can show somebody, you know, coming out of blocks at a particular angle. Um, that's not really. And I think that's also another rotational piece. That's really um, why you can't really see it. First of all, it's a small range of motion. Uh, second of all, if the, what do you call it? If the forces aren't being applied in a particular direction at a particular time, you're just missing the whole thing. Um, so if you're, if your leg is not sweeping back by the time it hits the ground, if that hip is not already, uh, the hip that was free in the air is not already sweeping back by the time it actually goes to hammer down into the track, you're not, it's not going to work. Like it's, you know, you're, you're hitting the same positions mechanically, but biomechanically it's not happening. And I think that's one thing that coaches, um, whether it's strength conditioning, track and field, or I think most other sports, um, really sometimes miss is that the bio and biomechanics, what, what directions are you moving? What is on, what is the quality of that movement? Um, as opposed to just what is the position that you happen to be in? Yeah, the, the rabbit hole goes further. Yeah, cause I'm glad you mentioned that too, because it's easy to say, okay, here's a position, get to this position, get very a very qualitative. The body's a machine based way of thinking, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, how that how smoothly that machine runs is going to tell you how robust it is, and ultimately how well it performs. You know, the like uh, the parts could get to us. Uh, like if you had a bunch of like messed up gears or something, they got to the same spot. <laughs> well, they got yeah. that spot, but it's yeah, like the quality and the, going back to what we we're talking with, like the Tai Chi and all those elements too. I, I think that's a cool way of bringing it back around. I, I was going to ask you too. Um, I think beforehand we were talking about like other things like stick drills or, or like are there other elements in building like speed or anything in the concept of track and field that you're there, you're using that endpoint uh, philosophy? Yeah, I'm definitely, um, I do like the stick drills. So I do a lot of drills with um, a stick either overhead um, or on the shoulders. And I wouldn't say we're training speed when we do that, but we're definitely training um, coordination and the capacity to start building speed. Um, Because we have to do, you know, maybe not have to. One of the things that we like to do is we do tempo in the early season, whether it's extensive, intensive, um, if you kind of follow some of the USTF, CCCA, educational um, kind of protocols, cut and dried stuff. We have to do that. uh, But do we really need to just do 200s to do that? So mixing those in to a spot where, okay, like we don't need to be that specific right now because the workload is not that specific. Uh, I might not be having somebody high jump with stick drills, um, you know, especially at a more (laughs) beginning level. But we can do a lot of the stuff that's more general work and start to work on some of those, that coordinational capacity um, to really feel, okay, what are your shoulders doing? If you hold a stick on your shoulders, you know where your shoulders are and you know where your hips are. And there are a lot of wonky arm movements that are just because somebody's shoulders and hips aren't firing in the right place. 
you start to put a little bit of poundage on somebody's shoulders and all of a sudden their posture, they can't get any vertical lift unless, they, unless they're in a particular posture just because you give them a little bit of weight. And I find especially some athletes that are a little bit lighter um, and can maybe get away, especially the really bouncy, springy, more elastic types that really, um, you know, say the kid is like five, nine and like, you know, 120 pounds. And like, we've had a few of those long jumpers when I've been coaching the college kids. And um, those folks, like they can get away with a lot because they're light that kids that are a little bit heavier can't. So you start to throw like a medicine ball into some of these drills. You start to throw a stick on their back, start to throw a little bit of weight in there um, during an actual dynamic movement. They start to learn, okay, like I, I <laughs> could be doing a lot more as far as putting a little vertical push into the ground um, and really shoring up some postural weaknesses that they might've built up, um, whether that's through other sports, but it just have worked for them. Um, sometimes in order to get an athlete to change what they need to do, you need to put them in an environment where that, um, that bad habit no longer works and they have to feel that, um, whether that's like a situation where, you know, they're doing a complex set of hurdle hops and they're going to fall on their face if they don't do it right. You know, you gotta be smart as a coach and don't, don't hurt kids, but, uh, you gotta make sure that, you know, I can tell you till I'm blue in the face, what you need to do. But if we can add a force or add a stick or add a med ball to something and, um, get you, you know, feeling for yourself, why this is not working. Why wouldn't I just do that and save my breath? Yeah. I like the idea of like a light, a light sensory, sensory stimulation to various joints to help create feedback. I, I, cause I was going to ask you about the stick drills for some reason when I, when I, it was written down, I was thinking like stick drills, like, like wickets, it's kind of like the same thing. Uh, I'm familiar with the Franz Bosch stick drills. Part of the thing that goes off in my brain, and I, I think you said it, but I'd, I'd love like some clarification on your take on it. Yeah. Is because uh, you know I see the stick drill and I think to myself um, like like this is making the torso a little more rigid right like mm. there's less rotation and so because I know you've talked rotational training but you were saying it's a more of a sensory maybe it's more of a sensory thing it lets you feel what your shoulders are doing uh, how yeah. do you kind of reconcile that in the context of rotational training uh, and and then the whole sensory thing honestly. One thing, I guess, when I started to talk about stick drills is that I almost never do stick drills and just have somebody finish on a stick drill, Oh, I see. Um, which I'm glad you asked that because I definitely have explained this to a lot of people and not mentioned this. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm glad I, I asked you that. <laughs> I will almost always have the kids drop halfway through. Yeah. So all of a sudden they go from this constricted <laughs> motion where they have to be super aware of where their hips and where their shoulders are ah, I got you. Um, in controlling that motion. And then all of a sudden they can open up and really feel the difference. Um, and almost always when I put together sessions that involve stick drills, one of the last things I do as a cool down is what these, things, these things I call bouncy runs that are basically just like taken straight out of a Soviet old school, um, training manual. And you're just running and the idea behind them, there's a couple different focuses that I'll use. Um, so they're about maybe like 70, 75%. They're not super fast, but they're big and they're open. Um, uh, one thing that we'll have kids focus on is just getting vertical push and feeling, bouncy you know that's mm -hmm. the name um another thing we'll do is have loose hip runs so we're just kind of taking our time we're not going super fast but we're just seeing how open we can get our hips in a certain coordination pattern um and actually just letting them do what they kind of want to naturally do um and for a lot of kids that ends up almost being a dynamic mobility um because they're not used to having those sort of torso stretches in a neutral pelvic position they're not used to letting you know their um letting their stride work like that because so much of their training has been through either team sports, which require a shorter range of motion, getting your feet on the ground very quickly in order to get to a ball as quick as possible or 
sprinting as fast as you can on the track. Or oftentimes, even when they're running tempo or running something slower, if there's not a focus there, they're often just tightening up in order to finish the rep at a certain mm -hmm. time. Um, because in most cases in our American system, we have a team and the team is, um, you know, the easiest way to coach a team to do tempo is to give them a time instead of giving each of them a technical component. Um, so that's definitely just giving them a focus is huge. I remember um, we had one athlete, again, I always bring up Alex because he's the man um, and I learned so much from him. We had an athlete who was, I think he was a 49 second four and a hurdler come over and we had him, he had him going, doing 400s and the entire focus of the 400 was one side of his body. So he was only focusing on the rotation, the snap back of the hip, um, the hiking of the free hip, all that rotational motion on one side of his body for an entire 400. Um, so like his, <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, granted, this is a guy who like, you know, 400 is going by relatively fast for, he's running 400, you know, 400 hurdles in 49 seconds. He's a fast kid, but, um, he's really, uh, like that's an intense level of focus. The other side is moving, but sometimes you just, you got to break that down and really just like focus on one aspect of the movement, um, at a slightly sub max intensity and really lock that in and kind of get that to transfer back. Um, we do a lot of things on the opposite end of the spectrum that are super fast, super quick, super short range of motion, um, just because of our culture, because of our sports that we play. Um, but that loose openness, um, I don't see that in American movement culture, unless you're like a dancer. Uh, we don't get a lot of track dancing mm -hmm. combos um, in the Northeast where I'm from. So we don't, uh, we don't really see that open flowy anything. No, I, I was just posting on uh, Instagram a few weeks ago, this uh, Israeli national record holder, she goes by a gravity bender and she was like, she was like a ballet dancer or something before she did high jump. It's crazy because yeah. she does things that are so awesome and connected with her. She was like a, a visual I used for like that, I guess you call it like the Spock hand or the yeah. the Vulcan hand or whatever, like yeah. that connects or the pinky hand, just super connected. And you know, we always tell like, oh, you're, you're an athlete. Oh, I, th I heard ballet would help you. Well, why is it going to help? Like, you know, it, it's we don't because I think we just need to take those elements and start infusing them into coaching a little bit better. But I. I think that, and you you mentioned this. You've mentioned this to me before. I don't remember what the name of the coach was. Who was the track coach? Who became a swim coach? Like an actual like swim coach? Yeah, I think Bill Boomer. Bill Boomer. Name. Yeah, and that's awesome because I think I see so much in the world of swimming. Having been in the swim world for the last seven years, and granted, it's a twenty-five yard pool or fifty meter pool, and that in itself, you know, versus a four hundred yard track, like. But that in itself leads to so many possibilities where you can have feel transitions where it's like, mm. okay, swim twelve and a half doing this motion that's not really the whole stroke maybe it's like half of a stroke or it's a part of a stroke or it's some sort yeah. of sculling or some like feel based thing and then swim the next 12 and a half actual like now integrate it and swim 12 and a half with this feel based thing now integrate it and i just don't think we don't do nearly enough of that in the realm of track adarian bar is one of the few coaches who who does like he'll have me do you know do front arm action back arm action front arm action back like go back and forth between that and integrate it and yeah. just even just doing something as simple as, um, and I've been a big fan of this with like track club is like, hey, run over wickets with one hand and then just yeah. go to both like and, and see how it feels. And <laughs> it's amazing. It's so simple, but it's like that feel transition is just so incredible. But like we're looking for 
I don't know what we're looking for. We're looking for something with weights and force. For that's like our yeah. first like vetting. Oh, is there enough force in this? Okay, if there's not, I'm out. <laughs> or like yeah. we just don't we just don't want to sit back and and just get into that blending of feel uh, environment. Or at least it's harder. I think yeah. it's harder for us to get to. I think it's harder, and I think um, maybe not enough of us are doing it that we have a collective trust of it. Yeah. Um, you go to some places <laughs> in Europe, and you know the jumpers just jump. Like, like the, it's just like, okay, well tech, you don't do like two tech days a week and maybe have a meet on the weekend sometimes. And, uh, kids actually get better. And I think sometimes here we kind of think that, um, because of what we see is the best people are doing this strength conditioning program this many times a week. And they're doing these workouts and they're doing this and that. So if my kid is not doing that, how does he have any shot? How does she have any shot? Uh, and we kind of started to look at that in that lens. And I think some of it is just okay, like if you really want to know if something works or not, you really have to like let go of some of your conceptions and really have faith and try it. Um, you know, some of my biggest learning experiences as far as which training components like I find are really, really necessary and which ones um, maybe are not is because I dropped them from the program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, like, oh, I guess I didn't you know, need that. I guess we're fine. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes it was that. And then there were there was one particular moment for me where I was like, oh, my kids are uh, really needed that. <laughs> they didn't get it this year. And uh, I feel horrible as a coach, but I learned my lesson. You know, I was willing to experiment and I found out something and, you know, can tell people now like, hey, <laughs> you really need to be doing some endocrine work or else your kids are not going to respond to the same stuff uh, the same way if you just skip that. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of stories like that for sure. Yeah. It's always interesting how we learn through those, those processes. One of my, one of my favorites was a good, uh, Chris Corfus anecdote with the captain Morgan runs. Like he was like, he's like, but back we had those, the kids are really fast. I was like, well, why did I drop those for a few years? You know, then bringing them back in and like, and captain Morgan runs are all, it's just, they look weird. Right. So it's like an easy (laughs) thing. If it looks a little different, it's an easy thing to dismiss. Uh, Absolutely. So I know, uh, Sam, you talked a little bit about uh, rhythm and timing, too. And I think that kind of whole fits if we're looking at this whole sensory and feel based aspect of the equation and, and guiding athletes to their own optimal technique. Uh, what are you what are you doing in like the rhythm and timing uh, uh, world of things? Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the biggest things that I took away from like a grad program in coaching um, that I was lucky enough to have a fifth year in college that I took advantage of was knowing that there's different ways to coach athletes, we focus a lot on the visual. Um, and oftentimes, especially now in the day and age of everyone having a cell phone and everyone having a camera and a video camera and a slow motion video camera, usually on those cell phones, especially at the college level, um, where kids have the means to have that. Um, we like as coaches, I think a lot of times we fall victim to that and we're not thinking we're looking at positions as if they just come together naturally and there isn't a temporal, a time-based element to them. So um, one thing that I found, that I think an anecdote that I tell a lot of people a lot of times, I had a high jumper last year, jumped 220 uh, indoors and nationals. Um, and that was a big PR for him. Um, but it really wasn't a big surprise because he was capable of hitting positions um, and he was hitting them well enough. And so we really just started, I said, okay, that's good enough. I think you can jump, you know, I didn't know he was going to jump 220, but I thought he could jump something close to that um, if he just got the timing right and hit it at the right time. Because some of those positions, if you your timing's off, you just, there's no chance of you hitting the position. So you can coach it one of two ways. Sometimes you can get them to clap it out um, as far as rhythm. And 
it's the simplest thing in the world, but I think it's worth reiterating uh, just like a million times. It's like, hey, if they're not hitting a rhythm when they jump, their position will be off. And sometimes if you're looking at a position that's off, whether it's a team sport even or a track event or even something um, a little bit more dynamic in the weight room, you got to think to yourself, is it that their position is completely off or is it that they're applying force or they're trying to attack the ground or they're just doing something at the wrong time? And I found at least half the time it's they're they've been able to get into the right position, but they're not applying force at the right time. They're trying to jump too early, too mm-hmm. late. They're trying to get to a spot that they don't, that they feel is comfortable and discarding the rhythm in order to get there. And honestly, that's the biggest thing why, um, yeah, I, I really just thought that was important to touch on. Honestly. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I think that it's just funny. Like we talked about, we came back originally, we we're talking about like, you know, overcoaching, overcoaching rigidity. And I think in the yeah. jumps in particular, we tend to see this. It's like the most common thing. And going to like club like track meets it is like the gutter of all coaching cues like these things that these coaches are telling to these little kids i just like i'm just sitting here like like i need a wall to go pound my head against or like it's just it, it's insane but like i mean it's but so quick quick is like right like the typical like like you want to be fast in your last two steps yeah. well okay well what if the whole rhythm of your approach was different and now <laughs> right on the last two you're gonna flip it because a coach said so and I've yeah. seen that like degenerate people's like long jumps over the course of a season. I've seen it take a kid from nineteen eight to seventeen three. And you yeah. you look at it and someone's like, What the heck are you like you you had this rhythm and you're completely like things get rushed, the knee drive gets rushed, or it's 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 um timing is so critical. It is Yeah, it is I the think piece. um when we look at especially the, like the two ends of the spectrum that I really see are off is one is that like you said, quick, quick at the end, and they're not taking any account into what is going on in the beginning and the middle, and even beforehand, is the kid even starting uh, in like a <laughs> reasonable position with some sort of reasonable force? Uh, and then the other one is that, yeah, you want to get off the ground quick, but you don't want to get onto your takeoff too quick because you want to load up your last spring. So a lot of folks, especially the folks that are taught that short step and I, you get a bunch of these coming out of high school. Um, they don't, they'll come into the takeoff and they'll put down their takeoff before it's ready to hit the ground. <laughs> so they'll, they'll essentially be as they're supposed to be rolling through horizontally through their penultimate and getting a nice elect, elastic stretch to go into that knee drive. They'll pull that early and they'll start to, you know, first of all, it's harder like the older muscles in that, you know, if they're left footed jumper in that right hip flexor are firing like crazy and they're gritting their teeth and they're like, you know, they look like, those are the kids that look like uh, in pictures, like they're lifting weights when they're jumping because they are. They've yeah, you better be strong. If you do that, you better be strong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've taken out the elastic component and they've decided, okay, we're going to muscle this movement. Um, and if you actually get through in a good posture, through your penultimate, you can, you don't need to be, any quicker than your the rhythm of your, the rest of your approach allows you need to get through that um so that's another thing as far as timing it's it that's more of a sensory piece i look at um is do you know when you've actually gotten through your last step do you know when, when your step is done on every step when you run how do you know it's done you know like what what are you feeling for i'll have i'll have um especially the younger generation um particularly speaking to them and not trying to pick on them but just because you have that access of technology, come off the runway, 
they go over and say like, okay, let, let me see, what do I need to fix? Like, what is, what do I see? Mm-hmm. And I, I straight up spent a whole year last year, like taking away video. Like we did not do video work uh, with maybe 90% of my kids, except for maybe once every few weeks, um, just because they needed to feel some things. If your best uh, line of line of correction is to go to a video camera and say, what did I do? You're like essentially screwed. Like, yeah, you, yeah that you can't gonna, be what like, you totally rely on every single time. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I mean is that if you go over there, if you're the way you get correction is to see yourself, that's great. If you want to draw a picture of yourself in the right position, but your goal is to feel yourself in the right position and to do it. So if you can't feel what you're currently doing and be able to correct and have some sort of awareness in that, then you're not going to be able to feel your way to the correct position. You know what I mean? Like you can't, that's just, you're taking away the, the feedback mechanism that is the body that is, that is the, <laughs> you're not a machine that you need to fix. You're, you're a living, breathing human and you're capable of actually knowing exactly what you did and being able to correct it exactly the way it needs to be. If you can feel that. And I think part of the coach's job is to set up an environment and to set up, you know, responsible training uh, where an athlete can actually go ahead and feel some of those positions and know those positions. And like we talked about endpoint coaching or, um, you know, like giving them that feeling that Feldenkrais practitioner, like dropping the kid on the, the one side of the pelvis, like giving them that feeling so that they know the feeling so that they can know, did I do that? Did I not do that? Um, yes or no, simple. That's the, that's the most basic of it. Um, because if you are so over-reliant on the visual piece, um, which I think, again, with the with all the information that we have available to us right now, think about it. How much of that information is visual? You know, even if we're listening to a podcast, most of what I'm talking about is images. Um, and I think that really affects the way people start to understand information versus maybe, and I'm not trying to romanticize, you know, the past of sport at all, but, you know, maybe before that people went and watched a coach and maybe they got something else out of it when they watched an expert coach coach. Maybe they saw exactly how they coach. Maybe they saw some of those force vectors. Maybe they saw um, or felt certain things that we don't really have access to um, in our age of over-information, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it, it makes total, I'm sitting here like nodding my head with you the whole time. And I mean, I've, I've, I definitely, I mean, we're all different. We have our own preferred learning styles too, you know, visual, uh, auditory, kinesthetic and all these things, Absolutely. but you can't ignore the, regardless of if I'm a visual learner, which I, I think I'm a visual learner. So, so the neurolinguistic programming book told me, cause I talk a lot or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> but I still need to feel my way. I mean, it's funny because like I'll watch my old jumping sometimes from um, there's the annual pilgrimage back to my home where there's some old video of me jumping in high school. <laughs> and I sometimes watch it because I like to see how I operated before someone coached me and told me how to do things like That's the awesome. fastest hundred I ever ran. I swear it might have been as a senior in high school in this relay. And I it was like one of the only ones I ran. But like, you know, there's no high knees like there's no. Yeah. And, I, and I was like, I mean, it's just it, so I always like to go back and do that. But I'm always blown away and, and make my wife watch occasionally. Um, but they, uh, <clears throat> but one of the things I always like is like seeing, I didn't really watch video back then. I did, but I didn't like, I didn't know what I was watching. It's oh, cool. I'm jumping over a bar. I'm sprinting over a hurdle. Like awesome. Like there was no yeah. like coaching relay from it. It was just parent took a video. All right. Nice. And even when I was coaching in my, uh, my four years at Wilmington, 
Now, if I had an iPad back then, I would have videoed the heck out of everybody just mm. because I like to do that. But I almost like I didn't do it because that wasn't a part of just how I was brought up personally. Like I didn't. Yeah. And, you know, and I graduated college in 06, you know, that was before the iPad years a little bit. But I, I totally I'm nodding my head because I totally get what you're saying. I think it's crucial. Like, and I also think it highlights the shortcomings of how we even educate coaches. Because where in any of our education has anyone talked about you know learning styles in this regards? You know, it's like people are like, oh, you have, oh man, Joel, you have six years. You did a master's in X. I didn't learn any that you know the farthest <laughs> thing from this stuff. I've had to figure it all out by talking to people like you, reading books, like working with coaches who get it like that, right? And uh, so it's crazy. But but I one one thing that was coming to my mind when you were saying that was like you think about like break dancers right we see this mm. ultimate combination of like grace and fluidity and power too and i think it's important yeah. that the power is there because that's what yeah. we resonate with is power and these guys got fluid and graceful and really powerful without you, know, you think those guys are sitting there like videoing each other like how's that flare man i'm gonna let me let me look at this ipad or iphone and let me ch- let me check i mean maybe now they are more i don't know yeah, but like saying, maybe now but I, not, <laughs> not back when it came out you know no no and people were and it was it was still you know i mean you watch some of that old b-boy stuff it, i mean it's amazing and probably the new and obviously the new stuff too it's amazing what those guys can do and it's really not a whole lot different than the same timing and power structures that are uh, of you know that we see in modern sport track and field or anything else and so i i i totally and all the, it's funny too even me like you know in working with swim like trying to learn how to swim like this feel-based yeah. thing the things that have helped me the only thing that helps me i mean i don't sit there with a video when i have learned at the pool but like just just feel the water in this way okay now go like mm. and that's where it the changes and then it's funny because you'll like get it like i'll get the butterfly one time and then I like, then I like forget it. It's like you lose it, and you're like, I'm now I'm I'm seeing that little motor learning curve in the Franz Bosch book, and now I get it. Uh, yeah. But but swimming has been really cool to f- encapsulate that for me and feel how important that is, and how I think we in an above land sport, which is easy to video and quantify. And and uh, this is the last thing I'll say before I get to the next topic because I don't want to hijack this. But like this idea of oh technology, but there's going to be these like um, on the squat cages, the top of the squat cage is going to be this video, and it's going to like coach you okay yeah. is it gonna it can tell you positions it can tell you numbers but at the end of the day it it's gonna come short in a lot of all the other things not to mention the human factor and i think that's just something that we don't you know i'm not a curmudgeon i'm not like a technology curmudgeon by any means i just yeah. think we don't understand these things that being human fully encapsulates the feeling and the intuition and the kinesthetic pieces of it yeah just to follow up yeah i'm not a technology curmudgeon i'm not recommending everyone like throw out their cell phone at all uh, just that we need to go beyond that sometimes. And we need to ha- not have that be the first line of defense. It can be second. It can be third. It can be a great addition to break things on video down. But ultimately, as a coach, you need to be able to see it and kind of feel it. Um, you know, it, it sounds very uh, esoteric to say you need to be able to feel someone's movement. But anybody who's just sat on a runway, um, you know, or a, like a straightaway on a track meet, knows it's a different feeling watching certain athletes than others um they have a different feet you know in starting to be able to differentiate okay why is it a different feeling is it the way they impart force is it their timing is it their coordination is it their fluidity is it just their power but there there are other intangibles that we can't quite get to if not for um for that human factor i totally agree man i think it's the same thing we're like you know i use an app to keep myself intentionally keep myself off my phone and it's like when as soon as you reach that place where there's no technology in your life all these other insights are coming in you know and it's just like it's just a general it's a general principle that i think we're all very well aware of and just 
fully pouring it over the coaching field too. Um, Absolutely. Huge benefits. Um, so uh, we got a few minutes left. I, I definitely want to get into this because I know we talked about it. Uh, but recover, recovery methods and modalities. And I know you're you're in acupuncture school and, and you're learning a ton from there. Um, so I, I, this could be a huge brush of general generalized fully question that could be a whole other show. But could you share with us a little bit, Sam, about your what you're doing for athletic recovery and take-home homework and, and everything in that vein? Yeah, so there's um, – there's a lot to this topic. So I think um, this would be just like kind of a broad overview uh, because especially from an acupuncture point of view and also from an, not just an acupuncture point of view, but from acupuncture is a giant world. Um, and we only have in the West, we often only have certain sources available to us because of translation um, and other things we can get to based on uh, people, you know, that can speak Chinese, Japanese, Korean, um, and certain other things, and you know, just have contacts um, in these other places because it's a giant world. One of the things that I think, especially being in the Northeast, um, that I think is really undervalued is the power of heat. So I'll give my kids take home um, treatments that will be sometimes in the sense of like um, a heating pole, even a heating pad will work. But we use um, this thing called Moxa, it's actually the English name is mugwort. Um, the Chinese name is Aie. My pronunciation is terrible. <laughs> um, but the idea behind it is that it's not only does it heat the surface, but it actually penetrates beneath the sin, uh, skin. They do all these studies and they actually show, find that um, inches beneath the surface of the skin on a line from where you're actually heating with the moxa, it will actually superheat that area, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, so you're basically plugging heat into the skin. And one of the things that we find in athletes is that there's a lot of cold, there's a lot of stagnation that builds up in the muscles as you've repeatedly warm them and work them and exhaust them over time. So that's a big thing um, that I give my athletes to take home is finding either certain spots with a pole and a more general area, um, or many times um, something else that we use is that we find specific acupuncture points on the body um, and can give them take home treatment to do themselves. Um, obviously, we're not going to give them needles and have them stab themselves. It's not a great idea. So what we do is we give them actual little, um, they're kind of like circles and they stick them on. You kind of just burn the end and they burn down. Um, They don't hurt. They're like just a wonderful little tool um, for promoting blood flow. One of the things that we actually do a lot of um, in Chinese uh, and Eastern East Asian traditional medicine is we look at the tongue. We look at uh, your radial pulse and the qualities of it. And we look at also in uh, Japanese styles, we look at the abdomen, meaning from below the diaphragm to above the pubic bone. And we kind of look at those things to determine how your energy is circulating in your body. Um, understand it's maybe a little bit esoteric for some people, but in actuality, it's really not because all of your organs are in your abdomen. So I think that's probably the easiest one for a lot of people to understand. And if there are certain areas that you know we know from experience if they're not functioning, if they're painful to the touch, if they're stiff, and a, a practitioner's hand can really start to tell these things um, over time and over um, years of practice, we start to look at, oh, like this pattern will benefit from this sort of treatment. And if we start to look at the internal imbalances, then we start to have a greater insight as far as why does this person keep on injuring this part of their body? Um, why is energy not flowing here? Why is there stagnation? Why is there, um, you know, as you are able to feel more and more, you start to feel differences in temperature. Why is this person's lower abdomen freezing cold and their upper super hot? Um, and that's not 
that that shows up with a lot of associated with a lot of injuries. Um, for example, that pattern often, you know, back pain. Um, but we're, that's not um, even if it's not associated with psoas tightness, even if it's not associated with QL stiffness or anything else, we can still have that pattern and still have pain. And I think that's one thing where our medicine really excels at is starting to look at how do we understand the fully working human body as opposed to just the musculoskeletal system as if that was a system on its own island, if that makes sense. I realize I answered more than just your question there. <laughs> no, it's but. all good. It's all good. It's, that's, and that's a big vein too, like to go down or a, a big rabbit hole is like, just what acupuncture has taught you about training and holistic, like just holistic function of the body. Uh, and I know that you've, you've also talked about like um, the yin and yang of exercise and yeah. things about like the mind and emotional factors. And, and you mentioned it before, you alluded to it before on this show, but like how do those, how are you tying in some of that work into how you look at an athlete's performance? Um, yeah. So one of the biggest things that we started to look at is kind of, which, you know, you can look at all training in yin and yang for folks that are not really familiar, um, light and dark, male and female. Um, they're not absolutes, but, you know, hard and soft, but they are ways to understand each individual thing. So even though I may be, you know, a man, I have the masculine or feminine uh, yin and yang sort of like aspect to me, if that makes sense. Um, and we all have this. It's just a way of looking at everything that we have. So in exercise, one of the things that we start to think about is kind of like a contraction or expansion, right? So a lot of the exercise that we do and we really value um, as far as putting out really big numbers in the weight room or running really fast and really central nervous system type taxing work, we kind of look at it as more of a young, more of an expanding nature. And that kind of dissipates our energy, right? You can't go and do that every day and expect to really last that long. Um, you can't like, you can't run like, uh, what do you call it? Like 30 meter flies for, you know, eight reps one day and then come back and do the exact same thing, uh, until Friday and expect to get a lot of training week you might survive, but it's not probably going to be greatly helpful. Um, so we need other things to kind of help our energy to kind of come back to us. Um, and that's where endocrine work comes from. That's one of the things I alluded to early in this podcast where I said, you know, I've dropped some things for the program that I really missed. Um, and that's a lot of that, um, you know, general strength circuits, just things to really like boost um, the way your body produces hormones, where you're starting to um, come back, your yeah, energy is basically um, more consolidating, you're basically building yourself a bigger motor, so that you can spend energy again later. Likewise, you wouldn't just spend all your time and basic strength in general conditioning, without ever expanding it, because just like breathing in and breathing out, which is a you know very simple way of explaining yin and yang, um, yin and yang. If we're using the Chinese pronunciation, yeah, be, let's be proper. And again, yeah. my my Chinese pronunciation is terrible, so I apologize if anybody speaks Chinese on the show. Um, you're starting if you can't breathe out, you're not going to take anything in. You know, like if you're not actually being able to expand, like that's why um, some of the uh, training programs where you don't sprint. If you're a sprinter and you don't sprint for the first month or three of training you're not you're essentially not spending the energy like you're building up this motor but the motor what is the motor being built for it doesn't know what it's being built for so it's not going to adapt to that system um so constantly keeping those protocols in mind of how do we use that how do we 
um, balance these things always and which times of year do we go on different areas. Um, one thing that I think Chinese medicine has given me a really interesting appreciation for actually um, is Verkoshansky's methods from the Russian kind of block training method. Um, one thing that I think is, it's just fascinating because he, you know, based on, there weren't an indoor facility, it doesn't sound like, that seems like why he did all the barbell stuff in the winter. Um, but basically, he essentially followed the seasons. He did a whole bunch of conditioning stuff in the fall. He did a whole bunch of strength training work in the winter. He did a whole bunch of elastic stuff in the spring and in the summer they competed. Um, awesome. And that actually, in a lot of ways, makes perfect sense based on the seasons um, the winter is more consolidating strength building. Um, huh. You know, we say it homes to like the kidney energy system. We're not talking about the kidneys in the Western biomedical sense of the actual organ, but we're talking about the functions. Um, so weightlifting, yeah, corresponds to the kidneys. Kidneys also responsible for the hair on your head. So that's why you see a lot of power lifters go bald early <laughs> <laughs> is because of that overuse of that one system. Is that adrenals getting um, taken to the house or something like that? Yeah, that would be the Western yeah definition of it, but absolutely. And then, um, you know, the spring is uh, actually the liver season and the liver in Chinese medicine controls the sinews and tendons. So that is a great time to be doing elastic work. Um, and fire is the, the element of the summer. So we look at fire and we look at competition. It's going all out. It's competing as hard as you can. It's, um, it's that passion. It's that fun. It's that, yeah, expanding, growing uh competing going as high as you can energy so all of a sudden you start to look at some of these things and you're like yeah like we can um reinvent the wheel and try to have the perfect environment all year round but ultimately our body does want certain things at certain times our energy does go inward in the winter like we know this from being able to look at somebody's pulse and know where their energy is circulating a little bit um it's not this like energy circulating uh like I see, you know, like I, I respect people that, you know, see auras, but it's, it's not that it's actually physically like where in your body, your blood is physically circulating deeper than in the winter than it is in the summer. Um, if you live in a place with big seasonal changes. So how do we work around that? You know, like there's a reason that track meets are, you know, the biggest track meets are in the summer. Um, and a lot of times I think the American system does run into trouble, especially in the colder areas, because we're not working around that clock. We're working against it in some ways um, by having these big indoor seasons and, um, and you know, the outdoor season is starting way too early. And I think some of the coaches that kind of say, you know what, we can't do it all seem to be the ones that do the best outdoors um, because not, it's not that they're sacrificing indoors. They're just being more re realistic and prioritizing um, one season over the other. Yeah. So that the, makes any sense. Oh, no, that's, I, I love that. I, <laughs> I was just thinking too, like when, some of the people I've seen from the track and field perspective crash and burn the worst were the people who started outdoor, like right away, like, or there's that first, like they wanted to extend indoor to hit that little qualifier. And then they like maybe took a week and then started again. Or like, it just, mm. it just burns you, man. And I've just the idea too, of like, I, I mean, even so in super training, this is something I'm always coming back to speaking of Rikoshansky and yeah. I guess, you know, it was most of his work or, but I don't know exactly how that went down with him and Mel Sif, but like it talks <laughs> about the number they go through. I think this is such a beautiful chart or training graph. I should, you know, look it up and post it somewhere, but like, it's this idea. Here's the number of weeks in the year that should be like hard, like, like high volume, high intensity. Here's the number of weeks that should be high volume, media intensity. Here's the ones that should be high volume. I'm sure it's different for everybody, but it just is like, look, like there needs to be definitive times 
that it's that it's this type of training. And I like that you've taken that even farther into like the seasons. I definitely am down with that. I'm like, oh shoot. So that means I should do I gotta do like ultimate frisbee in the fall. Um I'll yeah. I'll do some more weightlifting in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> track track in the spring and maybe I'll compete and you know track or you know, train for track in the spring, compete in the summer or something like that. I I yeah. I, I, I like I, I definitely like that vibe. I, I think that's really cool. And it's just uh I don't know. I mean it just it just makes sense. It makes me think too about how like there's track coaches that will definitively split up their training emphasis too. I mean, I love, I love the idea of vertical integration. I think it's awesome, but it's like, I don't like, I know in the Tony Wells system, which is super successful for sprinters, they just do pure. Um, now maybe their clock is a little bit back if it finishes in the college season, like with outdoors or something like that. But it's like the first, you know, two months is just pure strength and plyos pretty much. And then they don't do any speed and then they move into speed in the second uh, block and so to speak. And so, I always appreciate that with the block system, and I'm I, I'm digging it with the seasons. That's something that's cool. It's in my mind now, and I'll I'll totally be thinking about it because I start to think about it as a coach, and you start to play around with it, yeah. and start to understand um, kind of what's going on outside, and even if you're training inside, what's going on outside with the weather and all mm-hmm. that. You start to um, I think have a little, just a little bit of an edge on some other coaches that aren't understanding that. If you start to understand, mm-hmm. for example, um, something that. I've definitely been way, way more aware of as a, you know, practitioner, um, that certain injuries really don't like humid and damp weather. Then you so you start as a coach to not have kids do certain workouts. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, because they're, they're physically like the barometric pressure is different. Their body responds to that. Um, the, you know, dampness, the fluid circulating in your body, you need your fluids circulating in order to recover. You need them circulating in order to, um, just basically feed the things that work for you um, as far as muscles, tendons, sinews, bones, everything. Um, and if you're not getting that, then you really have to start um, questioning what we can do on a particular day and start. To, it's also just helpful to like, you know, even if you're training indoors, knowing if it's snowing outside, knowing other things, you start to know, um, you know, how your act- athletes are reacting in a more predictable pattern, uh, which I think is helpful. It's not like, you didn't know before if your kid was hurting and now all of a sudden you're going to ask them like you know if you said you maintain communication you already know that but you can just expect it more and start to look at um calendars start to look at things and have um have a little bit more information going ahead and i think uh definitely looking at nutrition in terms of where you at in the country um is one thing that i i'll tell coaches all the time like you you just really you if you're trying to recreate a uh, coach's training plan and you're in a different climate, be careful uh, because, or a different climate, a different season, because you're not, the athlete's not going to respond the same way. Yeah. It's just not um, like training in the desert is way different than training in the swamp in Florida. Like it's just, it just is. Uh, <laughs> we can go into, I, I can explain it in more Chinese medicine terms, um, but that's going to lose, you know, everyone here, but it's, uh, it is different. And we can start to actually like address that with treatments, um, with nutrition and with certain other things. So that's, that's a subject for another day or maybe a book. Yeah, no, I was gonna <laughs> say, write a book on it, please. I, I mean, it's yeah. such a, it's, I think it's cool too. Cause it's like, it's, it just reminds you of what a complex system the human body is. It's like the more things that we can feed our subconscious and our intuition, the better 
we can yeah. ultimately guide our athletes. And so, I, I mean, you got me thinking too, kind of like even, I don't want to like grab a hole beyond it, but like even the difference between short course swim in swimming and long course in the summer, like long courses, yeah. like the, the big, like world stage and, and it's, and short courses indoors winter. And it's a little bit more strength oriented because the pool's shorter and the walls are more important. And there's like this beautiful, like symbiosis between the two. And, and, I think it's it's just cool to see that across a few like breadths of things, but definitely write that book. I will definitely check it out. Uh, and I think because it, it's like there's so much stuff we can't explain. It's like, well, what what went wrong here? Well, maybe it's nice to have. Well, let's check out this possible explanation, you know, and and look at things from a different perspective. And I always think you don't know what you don't know, and it's always good to have that those ideas that can go beyond um, just just the typical explanations of things. Because then you just you know, the rationalization engine just starts rolling in and. You, you never get outside that that bubble of what's possible. So I will be the first one to read that book, Sam. And uh, <laughs> I'm excited for awesome. you to release it. Yeah, right. absolutely. I think, um, I, I don't know if, how we're doing on time here, but I was about to say, I think that's one of the things that um, going back to school is really helping with is just having a different lens to look at a lot of um, a lot of what we see in athletes, a lot of what we see as far as how they respond to training, as far as what we see and how they respond to life stresses and how those impact training. Um, and just giving a different vocabulary because we talk a lot of in our culture about stress. We talk a lot about fatigue. We talk a lot about um, these other concepts as if they were one thing. And I think knowing more specifically, having a, a vocabulary that talks about them more specifically and can help us to understand which stresses lead to which problems and which, which stresses lead to which fatigue um, is really, really helpful in understanding the impact of training and understanding the, the, the direct connection between what somebody's job is and how they're responding to training, you know, what they're doing nine to five and what they're training, like what they're doing in school right now and how they're training, or if they are in school, obviously, you know, and we all know the kids are sitting a lot in school, but there's, there's other factors um, in everything that we do that really have an effect on our, just our human organism. Um, and how we respond. So, yeah, that's again, we gotta <laughs> hash that out and put it in plain yeah. English for some people. But that's a uh, that's a future direction. Yeah, I agree. I said even the, the sitting thing. It's so easy just to demonize sitting. Oh, sitting like I don't know. Did I stand up and my psoas was a centimeter shorter? I, but like, but like, like Christian Tito said, it's like the stress behind the sitting. All the things that you don't typically look at. Like, there's a lot more that that the rabbit hole goes a whole lot deeper. So, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, for sure. Uh, so, well, awesome, Sam. Well, Hey, I'm, I'm excited to hopefully circle back here for future conversations, but for now, that's all the time we have. I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me, Joel. It's been great to be here. All right, that's it for that episode. Thanks for being a listener of this show, this podcast. We appreciate you. And man, what an awesome show. I, you know, there was a lot of nuggets, a lot of things that I got out of that that I'm already like synthesizing and putting into my own process. But one of the things that really resonate, has resonated with me over the last year is that idea of not just looking at a photo frame or a couple photo frames as this technical model, but being more aware of everything in between the lines. And that's something I've learned tremendously from coaches like Adarian Barr. And I think it's just, it's principles that is helping us all push forward and helping us be 
better in-person coaches and, and using that supercomputer in your head between your ears in this world where I think we're trying to like, you know, almost sell everything out to the data and that computer screen that's watching you and telling you what to do. So uh, that being said, you know, awesome, just just a really cool, fun episode with Sam, and uh, I think he is doing awesome stuff for the field. If you enjoyed the show, again, leave us a rating or review, and our sponsor, simplyfast.com, we really appreciate them. So if you like the show, just be sure to check them out at simplyfast.com. They have an awesome store with the best of in sports tech, K-Box, gym wear, uh, EMS, and a whole lot more. And we will be back next week with another great guest. Have a good one.